You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 12th of October 2023 on Monocle Radio. Israel's war with Hamas escalates, as do the global diplomatic machinations. Poland's notably bitter general election campaign enters its final days, and Australians appear poised to vote no on an indigenous voice to Parliament. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Quentin Peel and Elodie Goulesque will discuss the day's big stories and we'll have Henry Reese Sheridan's latest letter from New York City. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined today by UK correspondent for French and Belgian media Elodie Goulesque and by Associate Fellow with the Europe Programme at Chatham House, Quentin Peel. Hello to you both. Hello. Hi. Uh, We will have more from you both very shortly, but we will start in Israel and Gaza. Within the last hour, an Israel Defence Forces spokesperson has confirmed that roughly 6,000 bombs have been dropped on Gaza since Saturday's attacks on Israel by Hamas, which killed at least 1,300 people. At least 1,400 Palestinians are now known to have been killed since these airstrikes began, and Israel appears to be massing ground forces along the border with Gaza ahead of a land operation. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is in Israel and has promised America's unwavering support. Well, I'm joined, first of all, from the West Bank by Sari Bashi, Programme Director at Human Rights Watch. Um, Sari, first of all, how are things where you are now? Um, up until recently, they were relatively quiet, um, but we are seeing an uptick in violence here uh, with reports of stabbings. Uh, and earlier in the week, there were a few young men who were shot to death in the West Bank. Compared to Gaza and Israel, it is much quieter. Well, turning towards Gaza, and I, I suspect that there is no short answer to this question, but what sort of sense are you able to get of just how bad things are now getting? I mean, I don't want to say as bad as they can get because then maybe they'll get worse, but the situation is extremely dire. Um, As you mentioned, 1,400 Palestinians have been killed in Israeli airstrikes in the last few days. That includes about 450 children, uh, nearly 300 women. Um, Gaza is a very small, densely populated area. It's about 42 square kilometers. Uh, with with 2.2 million people, including about a million children. So when it is carpeted in bombs, there's nowhere to run. Families are are in their homes hiding. Uh, there's nowhere to go, uh, often in, the, in many cases in the dark, because the Israeli government has blocked supplies of electricity, food, water, fuel uh, to the Gaza Strip. And so people don't have a way to, um, they, they, they struggle to access internet, which is really important because it's just a, a kind of connection to the outside world. They're sitting in their homes and they can't protect their children. Uh, those elements you mentioned, the things of which Gaza and Gazans uh, are being deprived are parts of this total siege that Israel has promised cutting off pretty much everything that Israel can cut off. Uh, Is this something we've seen before, even within the context of Israel's long blockade of Gaza? Does this strike you as a different order of retaliation from that which we've seen, for example, in 2014 and in 2009? 
We have not seen it at this level, but it is an extension of a 16-year policy of closure on the Gaza Strip. So in 2007, the Israeli government imposed a punishing closure, closure on the Gaza Strip. And one of the first things they did was to restrict electricity supplies. But they restricted a very small amount for a very short period of time. Um, and similarly, there were restrictions on, on some food items. There were, at different points, restrictions on fuel. But at every moment, the Israeli Israeli government said, whether this was true or not, and in many cases it wasn't, the Israeli government said that it was allowing and ensuring humanitarian needs in Gaza. So it was limiting, but not depriving. And now all bets are off. Um, there has been no fuel, no electricity coming in. The um, the health minister in Gaza has announced that the health system is on the verge of collapse. There's no fuel for the backup generators. There are no more ICU beds left. This is in the context of over 5,000 people injured in the last, seriously, some of them seriously injured in the last few days. This is really unprecedented. Um, and there have been calls to allow uh, a humanitarian access um, to have a, a ceasefire so that supplies can get in, to resume the supply of water and electricity. Unfortunately, the Israeli government has thus far refused that. And again, to return to those points of comparison of 2014, 2009, do you sense a different mood this time as well? And and I guess a different mood would be understandable to an extent in light of the horrors uh, unleashed by Hamas last Saturday, uh, but a different mood among the Israeli public and among Israeli media, because uh, Israeli public opinion is about as far from a monolith on most things as anything can possibly get. And there has been uh, plenty of disquiet expression among Israelis for actions over actions in Gaza before. Do you get any sense that there's any of that now? The attacks on Israeli civilians on Saturday by Hamas and other Palestinian armed groups were unspeakable. They left a searing, deep national trauma, and we are still uncovering bodies and still trying to identify missing persons. I, I was at a missing person center in Israel earlier this week, and families were coming in bringing toothbrushes, uh, bringing photos of, of their loved ones with tattoos to try to identify um, where they are, if they were among the people, uh, the bodies found, or if perhaps they were kidnapped into Gaza, because Hamas and Islamic Jihad have kidnapped 130 Israelis, um, including civilians and soldiers, including uh, babies, um, children, older people, um, people with disabilities. It, the horror is unspeakable. Uh, it's it, it's it's something that it can only nobody should have to imagine that. So yes, Israelis are deeply traumatized, um, but not all of them believe that Gaza should be flattened. <laughs> there are Israelis who have some um, sense of humanity, and first of all, they don't want Gaza to be bombed because they're worried about their loved ones who are being held hostage in Gaza. And second of all, some of them get the principle that in war, you distinguish between civilians and combatants and you don't target civilians. That's what the Israeli government is doing by depriving civilians of food, water, basic needs. It's collective punishment. And if you um, if you deeply believe in principles of humanity, universal principles of humanity, then you wouldn't support targeting civilians no matter which side of the fence you're on. Uh, and just finally, sorry, we'll go back to where we came in, which is where you are now on the West Bank. I mean, what sense do you get of levels of apprehension among the people there about how things might develop? People here are scared. 
um, earlier in the week, the schools were closed, the shops were closed. Now things have reopened, but we're aware that um, this kind of escalation is unprecedented. And um, people are afraid that it's going to reach the West Bank, that it's going to reach Lebanon and northern Israel. Um, we need responsible adults. We need um, some of the people who are arming the Israeli government, especially the United States, to put limits on what the Israeli government is doing, uh, in particular with US funded weapons. And that means um, avoiding um, explosive uh, attacks, ex explosive weapons in Gaza that are predicted to kill civilians, and um, also stopping the collective punishment of Gaza by depriving them of food and fuel, and making sure that they calm things down um, so that maybe things won't get out of hand. Sari Bashi at Human Rights Watch, thank you very much for joining us. Let's bring in our panellists now, Elodie Gulesk and Quentin Peel. Uh, Quentin, first of all, uh, as I was saying in the introduction there, uh, Anthony Blinken is uh, in Israel right now. Um, it is usual for the United States at moments like this to at least issue some sort of you know, pro forma call for restraint, etc., etc. Blinken hasn't done that uh, this time. He's merely vowing uh, unwavering support to quote him uh, exactly. Is he doing that because he kind of recognises that at this point, uh, given the, the quite understandable rage Israel feels, there's not really much point in suggesting restraint? Possibly, but I think that it is there between the lines in the American uh, response. Yes, words like unwavering um, have been given and he said, look, we'll always be there for mm -hmm. you. Uh, on the other hand, they are really worried, I think, at the prospect of this really spreading across the region. And so they do want to try and restrain uh, Netanyahu from, from going... Com, you know, completely all out in, in, in clamping down on, on Gaza and starving the place to death, which would be just unthinkable. Melody, um, we have seen a couple of fairly unmistakable gestures from the United States who, as Quentin says, are trying to keep some kind of lid on things to the extent that that is possible. We've seen them move the USS Gerald Ford Aircraft Carrier Strike Group into the eastern Mediterranean, which is a fairly clear message uh, to Hezbollah in Lebanon that they don't really want to get themselves involved in this. Um, Secretary Blinken is also going to go, I assume, to the West Bank to visit uh, President Mahmoud Abbas, uh, nominal head of the Palestinian authority. But that surely is just Blinken doing that because he feels like he has to. And it's a worth, you know, it, it's at least a gesture because really he might as well be talking to the King of Tonga for all the difference uh, Abbas can make about anything. Or is that is that untowardly cynical of me? Maybe a bit. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't blame you given the whole situation. I think the United States, you know, it's not the first time that there is a s situation like this with Gaza. So they are always showing their support to Israel. They're mm. strong, the strongest ally and a, and a very strong ally. Um, I think it's good to show that there is even if it's just, you know, for the image that there is, that the United States are open to dialogue with Palestinians, you know, with because you can't just be, the atrocities are so horrible on both sides. And, you know, there's been lots of debates about stopping aid going to Gaza and things like this. I think you have to be reasonable and show that there is always maybe a, a bit of hope that peace can come and, and that the United States are here to make sure this is still possible. 
Um, Quentin, an, another diplomatic player we should consider, even if apparently nobody else is, is the European Union. Um, does anybody in the Middle East actually care what the EU thinks right now? Well, I think for a start, we've got to be clear that the EU has been traditionally a very important aid donor mm. to the Palestinian territories. Indeed so, and that's why we saw this peculiar row earlier in the week. That seemed to be a Hungarian commissioner going off on a flyer, though, didn't it? I think it was. Aid. It, it did look like uh, the European Union was, was very divided on this issue about whether to suspend aid or not. Um, having said that, I think it was pretty clear that there was a clear majority that said, no, we do not suspend aid, mm. just when it may be needed more than ever. So although I think that the European Union has managed Managed, as as is quite familiar, to demonstrate that it's not entirely all looking in the same direction. <laughs> um, I do think that they they can communicate. Let us not forget that the Americans have tended to be seen over the years as anything but a neutral referee in mm. the Middle East, and therefore there was a real desire to have another referee who might be more more open-minded to both sides. Um, and that, I think, is the role that in the long run the European Union must be able to play. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind that, that actually the Americans and the European Union both want restraint. And they are, I think, going to make that quite clear. Well, there's another player or perhaps non-player we should look at as well, which is Russia. And following Hamas's assault on Israel last Saturday, Russia was notably quiet, even though at least four Russian citizens were killed in Hamas's rampage and six more remain missing. President Vladimir Putin took 72 hours to mumble a pro forma condemnation of the targeting of civilians, possibly sensing that this might be seen as a bit ripe coming from him, and also found a way to blame the whole thing on the United States in the modern Russian tradition. One does not require a long memory, however, to recall a time when Putin embraced Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, not merely spiritually and politically, but literally. Earlier today on the briefing, we heard from Ksenia Svetlova, a Middle East analyst who formerly served as a member of the Israeli Knesset with the centre-left Zionist Union Alliance. Here is what she had to say on Putin's position. Nobody is surprised. If somebody is surprised, then they should take a closer look at uh, what uh, Russia is doing in uh, Ukraine for the last, what, now a 19 months almost. So uh, I think that we experience uh, today for Israelis, you know, this is an unpleasant awakening after convincing themselves for so long that Putin is not an anti-Semite, that he loves the Jews, that he loves Israel. Maybe some people around him, you know, this was the common thesis in Israel. Maybe there are anti-Semites, but not Putin himself. I can assure you, that uh, all of this incitement against Israel and also against the Jews, that they are coward, that they cannot fight, mocking the kidnapped female soldiers, uh, you know, that were kidnapped into Gaza and so on, it could not take place without the general spirit of the commander on, in top. That was Ksenia Svetlova speaking to us earlier. Um, Elodie, first of all, is it fair to assume that President Putin was not altogether displeased by what occurred on Saturday? Because aside from anything else, he will have well understood that that gets him out of the headlines for as long as this lasts. Yes, exactly. I think it's good for him because it 
as you said, brings the attention to another part of the world when the West has very much been focused on the war in Ukraine. Um, also, it's a good opportunity to criticize the US. Um, I think um, he said it's a clear example of US's failure in the Middle East. So, you know, it's always good to be able to do a bit of uh, uh, America bashing. And uh, so, yes, no, I think it's it's interesting that it took so long for um, Russia to react to this. But it's also, I think we need to remember, especially with, with the massacre we've seen in the kibbutz, like, for me, it really made me think of what happened in Butcher, mm -hmm. you know. So I think there's a lot of similarities in some way to what's happening in Ukraine and what just happened in Israel that also he maybe doesn't want to be reminded of. So, um, but yeah, overall, I think it's, it's good for him because, you know, maybe people's mind, maybe people's money will go uh, more towards the Middle East instead of Ukraine. Um, as Xenia was suggesting there, uh, Quentin, was Israel possibly mistaken in assuming that Russia under Vladimir Putin is still, broadly speaking, an Israeli ally? Yes, I think so. And I think that they've seen this coming for a while. I mean, don't let's forget that the fury in Israel when Sergei Lavrov... Um, brought up that old anti-Semitic trope that Adolf mm. Hitler had Jewish blood uh, as a way of sort of defending Russia from describing President Zelensky, very Jewish, uh, in Ukraine uh, as a Nazi. Um, and that really sort of confused, I think, the, the relationship. So that's part of the problem. And now I think the Israelis are acutely aware that Russia is depending on... Iran, mm. uh, of all other Middle East countries, for supplies of weapons in Ukraine. So that is something that would make them very uncomfortable in Jerusalem. I mean, Elodie, because these events do seem to serve Russia's interests, there has been an amount of speculation that then therefore did perhaps Russia have some uh, part in bringing these events about, which does seem on the face of it like what of your classic tinfoil hat reaches that assume that, you know, Russian, Russia is this sinister puppet master orchestrating events all over the world. But it is the case that uh, Ismail Hanya, the Politburo chief of Hamas, did visit Moscow as yes, recently yes. as last month. There is, I'm aware, also another suggestion that actually Ismail Hanya is not nearly as in charge of Hamas as he likes to think he is, and that this whole thing may have been undertaken without him knowing about it and he may have been as surprised as everybody else was on Saturday. Mm -hmm. um, I think Russia has prob is probably seen as as someone who's talking to both sides, right? So mm. Israel and um, and um, Palestine. So that could be that's that's a good thing. But then, as you said, yes, Hania was in Moscow, like this, sending a strong signal. Um, and for the last year, I think yes, the kind of support to Israel has been less strong through the war in in uh, Ukraine. Um, so yes, I think it's just um, it's just a very very difficult position to analyze. But basically. Um, I forgot your initial question. You do very long questions, you know. I do do very long questions, for which I apologise. No, it was just it was just basically that. Is it 
a bit of a reach to suggest that Russia had any part oh, yes, in yeah, yeah. inciting yeah, no. this. So I think there's been lots of rumours about this on, on both sides. I think uh, there's been rumours from Russia saying uh, is some weapons were provided by Ukrainians. Then there's been rumours that uh, Russia has provided uh, weapons to Hamas to do this. So I think this is, yeah, this sounds a bit... Um, too speculative for me at the moment, yes. Well, let's look a bit closer to where we're sitting. Poland votes on Sunday in a general election which will be watched nervously inside Poland and out by those who might have preferred that modern Poland had stuck with being the broadly liberal and collegiate European country it seemed to spend the immediate post-communist decades developing into rather than the rancorous, conservative and increasingly authoritarian nation it has spent more recent decades becoming. Poles of polls suggest that not only is the currently governing Law and Justice Party on course for victory, its likeliest path to a parliamentary majority is a coalition with Confederation, an unsavoury sack of xenophobic dingbats and feral nostalgists. Uh, Quentin, are you managing to maintain any optimism vis-à-vis the result of Poland's election? I'm pretty nervous about it. The 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 polls are quite close. Um, mm. They're both uh, in the low 30%, which suggests that neither will get an outright majority, neither Law and Justice, which is Kaczynski's party, the very Polish Nationalist Party, or indeed Civic Platform of Donald Tusk, the sensible, reasonable, <laughs> beloved in Brussels, and indeed in Berlin, party of the centre. Um, I think they're very nervous, particularly in Berlin, because the relations with Germany have been sort of weaponized by Kaczynski to say Tusk is just a sort of creature of Germany. He will undermine Polish national pride and indeed national sovereignty. Um, and uh, so he's really fought a pretty nasty campaign, although they both have. I mean, mm. they've both been slagging each other off as the incarnation of evil. It's a very personal campaign between between Tusk and, and Kaczynski, and I, I fear for the uh, for the outcome. Um, Elodie, was it pa- perhaps a mistake for the Liberal opposition to array themselves behind the idea of a restoration of former Prime Minister Donald Tusk, uh, precisely because of all those qualities that Quentin just enumerated? I mean, it's very very easy to caricature Donald Tusk for all the fact. You know, that he is obviously a recognised name, a charismatic speaker, speaker, an accomplished politician, etc. But it's not difficult to paint him as Mr. EU, is it? Mm. I mean, uh, in my personal opinion, Mr. EU is a pretty good title. But, uh, <laughs> but I'm French, so obviously a bit biased. Um, but yes, no, I, I think you're right. It could go both ways. I mean, certainly we've seen a rise in, you know, far-right parties in, in that part of the world recently. I think the war in Ukraine also has had an impact on this. There's, I think it's a big topic in the election that basically you want to, he's I think also seen as privileging kind of uh, foreign policy instead of like domestic mm. ones and so that that's something I think given the whole world context at the moment, you know, economically and in terms of everything really, it's a tough time so it might be the wrong card to play but then, you know I think that for me the most upsetting thing in this campaign is that you have the same same names, same people who were already in politics like 20 years ago. Um, this hasn't 
finding really a renewal of, of those people. I mean, Quentin, as, as you see it, what has been the key to law and justice's success? Because we, we do obviously have to acknowledge that they do have a constituency. People do vote for them. I'm, I'm putting in mind of what a, a friend of mine who lives in Poland uh, once said to me, that the difference between law and justice and what we think of as conservative nationalists, populists everywhere else in Europe is that Europe's other populists tend to get undone by the fact that when they get elected to office, they can't actually govern and have no interest in actually doing it because you get into government and you realise that this is all very hard and boring and everyone's yelling at me because their bins haven't been collected. Um, whereas, as, as my friend put it, the thing is law and justice do get the bins collected. They do get the potholes filled. They can actually run the country. Yeah, they've managed to alienate an awful lot of the rest of the European Union, which is actually a fantastically important supporter of Poland mm -hmm. economically. So um, I think on the face of it, they haven't been that good. And and uh, they, they represent a very socially conservative state of mind um, having said that obviously the Catholic Church is still very powerful in Poland and there are a lot of conservative people but it's it's a bit the rural conservatives against the sort of metropolitan urban areas and let me just say one thing a little bit more positive if Donald Tusk were to come out as a victor there would be an enormous sigh of relief I think <laughs> throughout Europe that actually it wasn't all drifting to the population but if that populist drift does continue, just finally on this, Elodie, how much more of a problem child for the EU could Poland become? Because it, it has made itself serially difficult in recent years. It did knock a lot of this nonsense on the head when Russia attacked Ukraine. Poland did seem to understand, OK, bigger fish to fry here, um, and understanding Hungary did not reach. But how difficult could it get to contain Poland within the EU? Because it, it's not a small country. It's not It's not one you can ignore. Well, I think that's one of the main difficulties for the EU is to control a state that would kind of go rogue. You know, we, we've seen it with this, uh, um, the Israel aid, the aid to Palestine. Like mm. someone says something and then, whoa, everybody else's reacts. So... I don't expect any control. I think the aim of the EU right now, but of course, Quentin knows much more than me on that topic, is to to stay strong and together. And, you know, especially with what's happening in Ukraine. So I think uh, the EU is going to do what it does, which is, you know, saying you shouldn't do this and trying to actually do something about it, but without having the full, obviously, control because it's a sovereign state. So there's so much you can do. Well, Australia is also voting this weekend in its first constitutional referendum of this century. The many morbidly attentive listeners to Monocle Radio's Foreign Desk Explainer will already be aware of how tremendously difficult it is to get Australians to vote yes in such things, so we can therefore consider the subject at hand, which is the establishment of an Indigenous voice to Parliament to make representations on behalf of Australia's First Nations peoples. Though the voice seemed very popular, when the idea was first floated, latest polling suggests that Australia is poised to vote no. Um, I, I am interested in, in how this looks uh, to the two non-Australians uh, at this table. Um, just, Quentin, 
you, first of all, as a general principle, from what you understand of The Voice, and the government have been quite willfully vague about what it would actually entail, does it strike you as something that can possibly do any harm, really? Uh, No, I don't suppose it can, but I think that may be part of the problem with this referendum. It's a sort of rather muddled proposal. Mm. It just seems to add another little layer of bureaucracy as a bit of a token gesture to the original indigenous inhabitants of Australia to sort of bring them in from the cold. And I think that, funnily enough, that's why it hasn't got the universal approval uh, of the indigenous peoples quite as much as it has of the rest of Australia. uh, Indeed so. Um, And it has... Obviously, Elodie placed Indigenous people right in the in the crossfire of a a culture war in Australia. Um, it has been likened to Australia's own Brexit, uh, that great divisive thing that splits everybody into one side or the other. And, and this is me framing my own contention as a question: Would it not make more sense for a government that wanted to do this just to campaign on doing this, get elected, and then legislate for it, rather than putting the country? through a process like this. Yeah, I mean, that sounds certainly like a better solution, given, I think, the record of Australia for referendums. Like We're not keen as yeah, a people. Exactly. No, I, I, think, I think the current score is we've had 44 attempts and we've said yes eight times. Yes. Three yeah. of them in one year when I assume everyone was just drunk or something. Yes, I won't make any presumption. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, no, so I think that sounds like... Um, yeah, a more reasonable way. Maybe you should campaign to, you know, to, be, a, to be a politician <laughs> I, I in Australia. this all comes back to how bloody-minded the Australians are. The Australians don't like saying yes. They much prefer to say no to things. Yeah, we, we do have, I think, an ingrained suspicion of proposals put to us by the government. There is also the technicality that you need not just a majority of Australians, but a majority of the Australian states. Mm. And there have been cases where a referendum proposal has won a thumping national majority, uh, but got shot down because Tasmania, Western Australia and South Australia uh, didn't like it. Um, The other thing I did want to ask you both just finally is, obviously, this campaign has been conducted quite substantially on social media as well, and that has gone about as well as you're already imagining it has. Have democracies yet, do you think, Quentin, absorbed the degree to which social media has made democracy, the democratic process, elections, referendums, so much more poisonous. Absolutely. I think I, I don't know how much it's taken on board yet, mm. but I think that is undoubtedly the reality. It just magnifies the volume of everything and of the volume in particular of misinformation and fake news and all of that stuff. And I think it forces people to the extremes which a referendum plays to. It's yes or no, black or white. There are no shades of grey any longer. Um, Elodie, there are some countries, just a final thought, which leading up to elections impose restrictions on what can be broadcast. In some places, you can't have polling uh, announced publicly in the days before. Um, Is there something to be said for unplugging social media two weeks out before every vote? I'm just... I'm just having ideas over here. Mm-hmm. Um, then you shouldn't be a politician in Australia, but in China, <laughs> maybe. Or, um, no, yeah, no, definitely not. I mean, it's it's tricky, right? It's the, always the the fight between freedom of speech and then, you know, going too far and having opinions promoting hatred, and you know, it's just impossible. I think it's more about educating people 
people on how to use the social media and how to, you know, be able to target fake news. And it's just a whole new way of thinking. I think we need to to start teaching our children and, you know, just trying to think, okay, this is all accessible to me. And we see it now, unfortunately, with, with what's happening in Israel and Gaza and being able to identify what's what's right and what's potentially wrong I think that the thing we need to trust people to be able to do this you know on their own instead of just unplugging everything well on that optimistic note uh, Elodie Gulesk and Quentin Peel thank you both for joining us and finally on today's daily it is time for Henry Reese Sheridan's latest letter from New York City thank you both for that on the weekend I visited Henry Street in downtown Manhattan The area contains a dense concentration of art galleries. The vast majority of these galleries feature art that's primarily meant to be looked at. But I wasn't there to see art, I was there to smell art. My destination was Olfactory Art Keller. It's a gallery run by Andreas Keller, a self-described expert on olfaction. Keller has dedicated his life to exploring the realm of scent working as a neuroscientist at the Rockefeller University, Keller developed a computerized method of testing olfactory sensitivity in humans and found a huge amount of variation in how individuals perceive smell. Keller was aware of an international community of people like him who are fascinated by smell. Many of them are in the business of making new smells, but virtually the only commercial outlet for smell creators is the perfume industry, Andreas opened Olfactory Art Keller to create a place where smells with aesthetic value but little commercial application could be exhibited. He invites visual artists to experiment with scents and perfumers to create smells to be experienced as aesthetic objects rather than worn. During my visit, I smelled a lot of smells. Each one was contained in fabric rolls packed into metal canisters and each scent had its own war text explaining the ideas behind it. To be honest, I didn't take notes while I was there, and the only scent I can remember the details of was labelled with a sticker that said, Warning, Offensive Smell. The war text said that the smell was meant to evoke the Minotaur's labyrinth of Greek legend. But I didn't find the smell offensive at all. I actually found it quite pleasant. That made me worried. If I secretly liked a smell that a normal person would register as offensive, am I some kind of smell pervert? I didn't have the courage to bring this up with Andreas at the time, and I walked away from the gallery holding on to a deep sense of shame. But I also felt like I'd had an aesthetic experience with a unique and rare value. I couldn't look up images of the smells I'd just smelled on the internet like I could with visual art, or stream them like I do with music. I had to be there, with the smells. Presumably this is why smell is so evocative as a sense. Almost everything we smell is emitted by objects that are physically close to us. I presume someone like Keller, who's thought so long and hard about scent, is aware that this is an important part of his gallery's appeal. But it's not stopping him trying to make smell a more easily shareable medium. He's a scientific consultant with OW Smell Made Digital, a company based in Cambridge, England. They're trying to develop scent delivery devices with a variety of research, entertainment and healthcare applications. 
As far as I can tell, the company is figuring out ways to download scents from the internet and pump them straight into your nose using proprietary scent delivery devices. I admire Keller's intellectual commitment to bringing more smells to more people, but I personally think a downloadable smell would miss the point. I want to pay closer attention to the smells around me, but I'm more interested in what they reveal about my environment than about any artistic intent behind them. Is that burning smell coming from the toaster or the oven? Are the overwhelming detergent fumes entering my apartment from the laundrette downstairs carcinogenic? Has one of my fellow commuters done a massive shit directly onto the floor of the train car, as I've previously witnessed in New York, or is it contained within their pants and trousers? Out in the wild, I can appreciate all these scents from, yes, an aesthetic, but also an informational perspective. Henry Ray Sheridan, thank you, as always, for that evocative missive from New York City. Uh, that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Quentin Peel and Elodie Gulesk. Today's show was produced by Paige Reynolds and researched by Harrison Warlock and Cecilia Armstrong. Our sound engineer was Sammy Susi. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.